Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast with your host, Anastasia Glova. This episode is for Tuesday, March 20th. George Mason University economist and blogger extraordinaire Tyler Cowen of Marginal Revolution is our guest today and will be covering libertarianism in its modern-day intellectual crisis. Tyler wrote one of the responses to the lead essay on Cato Unbound by Brian Doherty, author of Radicals for Capitalism, A Freewheeling History of the Modern American Libertarian Movement. The debate at Cato Unbound this month takes stock of what libertarianism means today, how it got this way, and where it's going. Tyler's response, at least in the way that I interpret it, is a call for libertarians to quit infighting about the finer points of anarcho-capitalism and objectivist epistemology, and to get real. Tyler, why do you say that advances in liberty bring bigger government? I'm not quite sure that I follow. Hayek makes the point in his book, The Fatal Conceit, that individuals really evolved in fairly small groups of 100, 200 people in hunter-gatherer society. And we still have, to a large degree, a tribal mentality. We might find this unfortunate, but I tend increasingly to take this as a kind of biological fact, something we need to work around rather than something we can change. If we move now to modern technological society, we have a great amount of wealth, but we often still want our government to behave as if we lived in this kind of tribal society. I think a good deal of libertarianism is criticizing this attempt to impose a tribal mentality on government, but what I think happens is we are excessively egalitarian. We care too much about visible costs and not enough about invisible costs, and we want our government to do a lot of things which alleviate immediate suffering, but in the long run maybe hurt people or don't help them much at all. So to some extent, at this point, I've just thrown up my hands, and my strategy is let's have the wealth of the world increase as rapidly as possible. A lot of what's called the transfer state I don't think we're ever going to overturn. I view that more or less as a losing battle. If you look at countries that have reformed a lot, like New Zealand or Chile, for all the radical changes they've made, they haven't cut welfare spending. And I think it's because it's very deeply rooted in human nature, this desire to have our government behave in that fashion, at least if we can afford it. But feeding the welfare state through taxation takes wealth out of the hands of individuals and hampers wealth-generating activity, so it's counterproductive. I think that we would all, as human beings, be better off if we spent less on the welfare state and spent more resources helping poor people through the means of increased immigration. In my view, this would be a significant gain. I don't think it ever will happen. I think it's still worth advocating. But in terms of where the rubber hits the road, what are the policy issues where libertarians will make a difference? I think it's finding new and creative ways to help economies grow faster and help people to be freer. And it won't come in the form of overturning the welfare state. I was surprised to find you arguing in your Cato Unbound essay for increases in positive liberty. You know, Classical liberals have traditionally cautioned against positive liberty in favor of negative liberty. Can you explain your reasoning? For instance, Robert Nozick, in his classic book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, he defined liberty as being free from external coercion. So if someone comes and tells me I can't take a certain drug, that's an imposition on liberty. If someone comes and taxes me without my consent, that's an imposition on liberty. I agree this is a relevant notion of liberty, but I think the most important notion of liberty is somewhat broader, and it relates to the question, what can I actually do with my life? So if I were in a setting where no one, no government were coercing me, but I actually had few opportunities, 
In my view, I would not be very free, and this is something we should be concerned about. This is what philosophers call positive liberty, what you can do as opposed to being free from the coercion of others. So I think in the past libertarians have emphasized negative liberty too much. To me, that does matter, but the real ball game is positive liberty. People care about what are the options in their hands, so to speak, and not just who's bothering them or not. So this would be a reorientation of libertarian thought. But I think a lot of the elder libertarians, Wilhelm von Humboldt is one of the most notable examples, Adam Smith is another, also Milton Friedman, they have been focused on positive liberty rather than negative liberty per se. Isn't positive liberty a form of coercion? It's your right to do something to fulfill your own ends, but often at the expense of the freedom of others who are forced to accommodate your outcomes. That's a good question. I wouldn't word it as saying people have a right to positive liberty. I would word it as saying the case for a free society, rule of law, limited government, rests upon how much positive liberty it can create and not how much negative liberty it gives us. That being said, I think some amount of coercion is required for both positive and negative liberty. I think we need a well-limited government rather than some kind of libertarian anarchism. But I think actually this has been the position of Cato all along. You also say in your essay that you think libertarians spend too much time complaining about things they simply can't change and that they need to accept, that these are package deals, they're not going away. All right, so what should libertarians fret about today? I'm not sure there's any central planning answer to the question, what should libertarians do? I think each libertarian should develop his or her own sense of what to do, and this will differ depending on a person's talents, inclinations, free time, whatever. So I don't think there is any answer to that question. I do think there are some specific areas, and again, I would go back to the transfer state, the welfare state, where I think we really have not made much of a dent. It's been there for a long time, and some of us maybe should think twice and look for other things to write and talk about. I think it's unlikely in the next 50 or 100 years, very unlikely, that we will have any free advanced capitalist society which doesn't have a welfare state, and that's what I'm calling the package deal. One of those issues that you bring up, then, is intellectual property. You say that the new libertarianism will have to be more pragmatic at its heart, and it's going to have to take intellectual property issues into account. So how do you propose doing that? Personally, I don't know what's the correct stance on intellectual property. Cato has done some very interesting work on this. There are some essays by Tom Palmer in the Cato Journal, where Tom argues, as I understand it, that intellectual property should be done by covenant. So there should not be copyright or patent per se, but if you produce something and sell it with a covenant that no one else may reproduce it, you've in essence instituted a kind of property rights protection by contract. That's an intriguing idea. I can think it would work in a lot of areas, but I'm worried about what happens when you produce things and then they're lost or they find their way into the hands of people who have not written the contract, not accepted or signed on to the contract, and those people then reproduce the items like crazy. In a digital world where so much distribution is over the Internet and intellectual property is becoming increasingly important, I'm skeptical that this is a general solution to the problem, though I think it's an interesting idea. I don't think there's any a priori moral notion of what property rights should be when it comes to copyright or patent. I think it's case by case, seat of the pants, common law, muddle your way through. But libertarians can add a lot of insight concerning the importance of incentives and the importance of human liberty to these debates. Okay, another issue that you bring up in your essay, terrorism and nuclear proliferation. Libertarians don't traditionally have a foreign policy to speak of, so how can libertarians address this? In my opinion, the American government will need to conduct an ongoing foreign policy consisting at the very least of surveillance. 
this does not mean unconstitutional surveillance. It does not mean spying on our own people, but it does mean some or all for surveillance. It also means having a nuclear deterrent. It also means having enough armed forces so that when something happens, like, say, Afghanistan, that we have the ability to go there and, in essence, take out the enemy. Now, that being said, I think we could have a 100% wise foreign policy, whatever the best foreign policy is. And even so, at the end of the day, 30, 40, 50 years from now, there will be small groups with nuclear weapons who will use those weapons to make threats. And I don't know how to handle that problem. I don't think non-libertarians have any better handle on it, but I think it will likely be the number one problem in the world, and we all need to be thinking about it very hard if we want to preserve liberties for future generations. Well, you know, that's obviously a very valid point that policymakers ignore at their peril, but it doesn't normally fall within the purview of libertarian thought. So this being a national concern of such high priority, would you say that libertarians have exhausted their intellectual fuel? That having already achieved a certain measure of freedom, libertarianism is just now obsolete? I don't think it's irrelevant at all. I think the important parts of libertarianism, which is to think critically about the world and look at it in terms of incentives, the importance of rules of the game, and the immense creative energies of individual human beings operating under a system of natural liberty, those general frameworks are very much alive. But when it comes to implementing it and applying it to specific policy issues, we have a lot of hard work ahead of us. And as the Chinese have said, we are indeed cursed to live at interesting times. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.